let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has to come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands to take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge yourselves, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord of jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. If, you, if you're new, if you're visiting, um, we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is uh, Paul's letter to the, ancient, the, the church in, in the ancient city of Corinth, so a couple of thousand years ago. Um, and in chapters 8 to 10, Paul's been addressing questions that they've sent to him um, so imagine he's kind of like, he's, he's, he's like off doing his missionary thing and planting churches and, and they're writing letters to him and, and they've said, hey, wh- what about this deal of eating food that's been offered to idols? And for them, that, I mean, that might not be such an issue for us now, uh, but for them, that was a fairly common practice was people would eat meat that had been offered to idols and they were concerned about it and rightly so. And so Paul uh, writes back to them and answering all these questions and he uses this issue to teach them one of the, I guess one of the main or one of the core principles of Christian living, of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to live as a Christian. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, and Nick expanded on it last week. The freedom that we have that comes from being in Jesus allows us to follow his example by laying down our rights and our preferences for the sake of others. 
So we, we, we looked at this idea that as Christians, that's, if you're a Christian this morning, we're the church and we are in Jesus. That's, by the way, that's the most common phrase in the New Testament for Christians is people who are in Jesus. We are in Jesus. And, and so therefore, we live these lives of joyful denial for the sake of our brothers and sisters who are also in Jesus and for the sake of people who are, that don't know Jesus yet. So that in everything we do, we deny ourselves so that they would come to know Jesus too. And then still on this theme in our text this morning, Paul, Paul focuses in on this idea of idolatry. And we're going to look at that, what that means in a minute. But before we do, I wonder, does anybody remember, uh, and I'm trying not to look at anyone in the eye, does anybody remember the WWJD bracelet craze? Yeah. So, some people are already like shaking their head. Davey's like, I do remember it, but not for me. <laughs> um, this was a bit, I guess it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that, or 2000, I don't know. Maybe it went on for a long time. What would Jesus do was the question, right? You wore the bracelet, uh, and then if you went into any faith mission bookshop, there was not just bracelets, there were t-shirts. There was no actual t-shirts and uh, tea towels and pencils. And I went on eBay the other day. You can find all this kind of stuff still out there. And the pièce de résistance on YouTube, there's actually a WWJD movie called... WWJD, colon, what would Jesus do? And it's an actual movie. And I don't think it ever made it to cinemas, but you can go and watch it if you want. And I mean, honestly, I've got no problem with people being public about their faith in Jesus. In fact, I really want Christians to do that. I think that whilst we have a personal relationship with Jesus and we have a personal faith, we don't have a private faith. We are called to be publicly Christians. That's, what, that's part of the point of being a Christian. But there's more than a few problems with the whole WWJD thing, right? So firstly, when you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? That implies that you, sh- you know what Jesus would do in any given situation. And, and that is entirely subjective because me and Thomas, for example, could be facing the same situation and ask ourselves what Jesus would do here and come up with different answers. So it's pretty, it's pretty subjective. And, and, but the main problem that I saw with it at the time, and I remember thinking this, and was... It was completely possible to wear the bracelet and somehow think that that identified you as a Christian. That was all the piece of Christian living you had to do. And so you could just go on living however you wanted in a not very Christian way. Does anyone, does anyone relate to that? I'm not asking you to confess. I'm just saying, well, I am, but not publicly. But you know what I mean. Um, can anyone relate to that way? It's like, oh, I've, I've worn a bracelet. So, you know, you know my, my friends at school know I'm a Christian because I'm wearing the thing. And then you can just... Uh, no, no one will. He, he, there's no way he'll listen to this, but there's a guy in my uh, class at school who used to take it off so he could go around the back of our bike shed and have a smoke. Why would you take it off? I don't understand. I mean, anyway. Um, no, that wasn't the case for everyone, but I, I, and I'm being, I'm, you know, it's hyperbole to make a point um, because I think that we all like this kind of thing. We all like to be saved, but we don't like it to affect our lives. We all, we all want to be saved from God's wrath and, and judgment, but we don't really want to change our behavior too much. Honestly, we, do, we, 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 just, we want just enough of Jesus to save us from hell, but not require anything of us. Isn't that true? As long as I know I'm sweet, as long as I know I'm saved, I'm not going to go to hell, but, but don't bother me. You know, I want to just be free to do whatever I want to do. Another name for this is... is uh, nominal Christianity. It, it means being a Christian in name only. And I think it's, it's possible for a lot of us to drift into this without even realizing. So you might come to church, you, you might take communion, you might even be in a missional community, 
But let's be honest with ourselves. You don't let Jesus influence much of your life outside of that. Christianity is for when I go to church and that's it. That's actually one of the reasons why we don't talk about going to church at Village. We don't use that kind of language. We are the church and we intentionally talk about the church being gathered. This, this is our central gathering. This is the main time of the week when the, the church gathers together. We, you don't go to church. That's a small side point, but an important one. But it was this kind of attitude that the Corinthians had. Um, they, they thought that, okay, well, we've been baptized, and we, we take the Lord's Supper or communion uh, every, those are two names of the same thing, every Sunday. So we can just do whatever we want outside of that, right? It, 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 it has no impact on our lives because they were making two mistakes. Firstly, they were overestimating the power of communion. So they thought maybe that it had some kind of power that would save them from the effects of idolatry. So uh, they were somehow protected from the effects of sin just by taking this meal. Um, and that was their first mistake. And the second mistake is that they were, so they were overestimating the power of communion, and, and they were also underestimating the purpose of communion. So they thought it was just something you did. They thought it was just a symbolic act. Oh, it's just something to remember what Jesus did. They had missed the point that eating, and eating the bread and drinking the wine was, was to share in the life of Christ and the fellowship of His church. And both these mistakes about communion had led them to the belief that they could just live however they wanted. They were using the table. They were using this meal as a WWJD bracelet. Just, it's, it's my marker that I'm a Christian, so I can just go on living however I want. And, and, and Paul's saying here that actually our freedom in Christ, we have immense freedom in Christ. But it's not a license to go on living in sin. It's not a license to go on uh, just following our old sinful desires. But actually, and this is on the slide, Tim, I think, we are part of the body of Christ, so we need to flee from idolatry. That's our, that's our theme for this morning. We're part of the body of Christ, so we need to flee from idolatry. Now, if we're to flee from idolatry, we probably have to ask ourselves what idolatry is. Because I'm sure we have all kinds of different ideas, and, and I want to be really clear about that, and I want to, I want to have a biblical answer for what that is. Um, and, and actually, if we're, if we're to flee from something, how are we supposed to run away from something if we don't know what to run away from? So let's start back at the beginning. Idolatry just means the worship of idols. And the Bible has an awful lot to say about idols, right? So in Old Testament times, way, way, way back, you would have lived under the rule of some kind of king or other. That's generally what it was like. And oftentimes, those ancient kings would declare themselves to be God. So has anyone ever seen the movie 300? Yeah, that Syrian king, who's actually mentioned in the Bible, never mind, different story, he declared himself to be God. I'm God, you can worship me. And you can read about this in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, I am God, build a statue to me. And this is what they would do. They, they, they decided for the people what was right and wrong. In other words, these human beings, these kings, claimed the knowledge of good and evil. And if you knew your Bible, you might, know, you might see issues starting to creep in with that. And these kings would have statues of themselves made so that people could bow down and worship these statues. And, and the Hebrew word for these statues is selem, which means idol or image. The word idol image is the same thing. It's an image of a person. 
But the problem is, God says, well, I'm the actual king, and you won't make any images of me because I've already made images of myself. Human beings. We are the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God, and we are given the task of ruling the earth under his authority. He alone gets to call the shots on what is right or, right or wrong. God alone gets to decide what is good and evil. And he gets all the glory. Why? Because nobody else created the universe and life out of nothing, only him. And so by, if, we, if we make an image or, or, of, a, of a person or an animal and we start worshiping that, then, then we're worshiping a created thing, not the creator. You're worshiping a form of life, not the source of life. You start to see where this is a juxtaposition from who, with who God is. You're given devotion to something that is not meant to have devotion. You're worshiping an image of God, not God himself. And human beings have been doing this the whole way through history, right? So Romans 1.23, um, uh, Paul writes another letter, letter to the church in Rome. And, and he says this, talking about humans, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And he goes on to say, They, that's people, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's really at the heart of what idol worship is. We've taken God and we've created something and we worship that. It's when we worship anything other than the only one who is worthy of worship. God is the one who created us. It's in Him that we find our identity. It's in Him where we find our meaning. He's the one in whom we find happiness and satisfaction. And yes, so not many of us probably worship um, uh, little statues of animals or people. I don't know, maybe you do. I don't know what you do in the privacy of your own home. Maybe you do do that. I don't know. You shouldn't. But... We still have idolatry in our lives, don't we? So what are our idols? Most of us aren't worshiping little statues of the king. Well, let me put it this way. To help you think through what are the idols in your life. Um, our idols are things that are more fundamental to our happiness, meaning, and identity than God. Our idols are, are things that are more fundamental for our happiness, identity, and meaning than God. And so if you want to fi figure out, can you see how that relates to worshiping an image? What have I taken? What created thing have I taken and put it in the place of God and give all my devotion to? It's the same thing. So if you want to figure out what the idols are in your life, ask yourself this, right? Well, what's truly fundamental for my happiness and my meaning and my identity? What do I find my identity in? What gets most of my attention? What do I spend most time thinking about? What do I desire most? What do I put most of my effort and time and resources into? Or another way of thinking, I was chatting to, I was chatting to somebody else this week and, and chatting about idolatry, and he said, actually, a good way of thinking about it is, what could you not bear to live without? What could you not bear to live without? There's a, um, there's a good example of this in the Bible when... Um, uh, Jacob had two, two, two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah. And, and Leah was having all these children, and that, that, and that culture is really important. She was bearing him lots of children, and, and Rachel was barren. And she says, she, said, she says, give me a child or I die. And it's that sense of that's what she was putting her identity in, her hope in. 
And I think one of the biggest idols in our society in Northern Ireland is security. And I think particularly security that comes from money, marriage, and family, or, or, or financial security, relationship security, and, and family security. Now, it's not going to be the same for all of us, and some of you are at a point, maybe you're still too young to be idolizing those things fully, but you maybe want to trace your life in that trajectory, but, but most people desire those things. And if we don't have those things, like we saw earlier on when he's dealing with, with singleness and so on, we somehow feel insecure or incomplete. Or if we do have those things, they're the source of our happiness, they're the source of our identity. I am that job. I am that parent. I, you get the idea. That's idolatry. And God says through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 that we need to flee from idolatry because when we do that, we're robbing God of His glory, aren't we? Stop making those good things that God has given you ultimate things. Stop, making, stop worshiping created things rather than the Creator. Stop worshiping these aspects of life rather than the source of life. And the sin at the heart of idolatry is robbing God of His glory. And this is why we need to flee from it, because only God deserves glory. So how do we do this? How do we flee from idolatry? We spend time this week um, thinking about what the idols are in our lives, what that might look like for us, and then we want to be obedient to Jesus. So how do we flee from idolatry? Well, there's three, there's, I think there's three lessons for us in this passage the first one is that we need to recognize that it's not just about Sunday, okay? So what do I mean by this? I've already touched on it a wee bit. Well, basically, what I'm saying is that you can't just come to gathering on Sunday and then not live like a Christian the rest of the week. That's not how it works. Just coming to gather and taking communion doesn't make you exempt from God's judgment, that's basically what Paul is saying here, and he uses the Israelites of the Old Testament to make his point, right? So he says in verse 6 that these things happened to the Old Testament uh, Israelites that they could be an example to us. Now, that might sound quite strange. Is he saying that all this history of the Old Testament just happened to be an example to us? Well, yes, kind of, and no, kind of. Really what he's saying is that, well, really what's happening is this word in our English Bibles is translated as example, is the word type. It's, it's type. It's this, it comes from this Greek word for type, but it doesn't mean type in the way that we understand it. It's not like, I want that type of car, or I want that kind of ice cream, or whatever it is. Um, it, it's, it's not variety. This word type means a figurative uh, version of, or a foreshadowing of. So let me explain by an example. Most of you will be familiar with uh, David and Goliath, the story in the Bible. Can some people nod their heads so what, they know what I'm talking about? Okay, cool, thank you. You've heard that story, good. Otherwise, we'll all be back in the kids' room learning that. Um, so, David is a, a type in that story of Christ, okay? So, so he, is a, an, he is a shepherd, for, and Jesus is the good shepherd, he, on behalf of all the people, fights the enemy of the people and defeats him on our behalf. And by the way, interestingly, uh, Goliath the giant, it says in, in 2 Samuel 17, that he wore, scales, or he wore armor of scales like a serpent. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, 
That's not the passage we're on today. Um, but he, he's a type. David foreshadows Christ. That's how this type things works. And Paul is saying here in the Old Testament that the people of God, the Israelites, are a foreshadowing of the New Testament people of God, the church. So Old Testament people of God, Israelites, foreshadowing of New Testament people of God, us, the church. And that's why he says in verse 1, uh, he says, our fathers, our ancestors, we have common, they are our ancestors because of Jesus. They're our spiritual ancestors. And so he draws some, some comparisons to get them to make his point. He says, in the wilderness, the Israelites were led by a cloud, and that cloud represents the Holy Spirit just as the church is led by the Holy Spirit. God uh, led the, uh, led the um, Israelites out of slavery in Egypt by leading them through what? By leading them through water. He parted the Red Sea. They went through waters of baptism, a kind of baptism, just as we, when we become Christians, we come into the church through the waters of baptism. In the desert, then, God provided bread, spiritual food, and, and physical food. It was called manna, and it came from heaven. And it, it provided them physical nourishment and reminded them of their dependence on God for everything. Just like uh, when we later on will we'll eat this physical bread from the table, it reminds us of our dependence on the Lord and our being nourished uh, from Him, by Him. In the wilderness, God provided water from the rock, water that flowed from a rock. And this rock, Paul says, represents Christ, who's the living water. And likewise, when, when the church drinks the wine of communion, that represents the blood that flowed from Jesus' side when He died on the cross to give us this eternal nourishment. So Paul says, hey, I'm going to talk about the Israelites for a minute so you can get my point. And here's why you can trust that this is reliable. Look at all the ways they are a foreshadowing of us. But what is he trying to teach them? Well, the answer, I think, is verse 5. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Literally, they, they, led, they were made to lie down in the wilderness. They, they died. They died there. All, all these, the Israelites had all these spiritual advantages that, that I've mentioned, and yet they didn't make it to the promised land. Only two guys that left Egypt got into the promised land. The rest of that generation died out. They never made it in. Despite all their privileges and advantages, the people of Israel failed to enter the promised land because they failed to obey God. They had become presumptuous about their spiritual status. Just because they had all these privileges, they assumed that they could just do whatever they want. And verses 6 to 10 give us some examples of what they did. They had evil desires. They, they worshipped idols. They indulged in sexual immorality. They put the Lord to the test. Um, Paul makes it Christ here to show that Christ is the Lord. They put Christ to the test. They grumbled and complained. And all these examples that Paul uses from Israel, they're all things that Paul has already addressed with them or he's going to address with them. And so the comparison is clear. You guys are just like the Israelites. You think that just because you've all gone through baptism and because you've all taken the Lord's Supper, you can go on living however you want. Well, here's the truth. You can't. Look what happened to them. They disobeyed God and they faced His judgment. And because of that, they never made it into the promised land. And listen, church, just because you come to gather on a Sunday, just because you take communion, just because maybe you're part of an MC when you feel like it, it doesn't mean that your heart isn't worshiping idols elsewhere. 
You, you can take communion. You can be baptized. You can come to gathering and still find your, your ultimate satisfaction elsewhere. And we need to be so careful about this. Because if the example of the Israelites is anything to go by, this kind of idolatry leads to never making it to the promised land. And that's terrifying. What happened to the Israelites in the wilderness should serve as a warning to us, the church. We can't presume on God's grace and think that that we will receive a final reward if we continue to live lives full of sin. If Israel was judged, even though they had so many blessings and advantages, just like we do, we need to be careful too. And this is what I mean when I said uh, it's not just about Sunday. You see, there's no such thing as a Sunday Christian. People hear, people hear that phrase, a uh, Sunday Christian. There's no such thing as a Sunday Christian. You either worship Jesus as Lord or you don't, right? Jesus is either Lord of all or he's Lord of nothing. It's impossible for Jesus to be Lord of part of your life. And honestly, I think that most of the times if we're, if we're a Christian and we're feeling frustrated and we're disappointed and maybe even better about our lives, it's probably because we're trying to be a Sunday Christian. It's probably because we're trying to be a Christian in name only. It's probably because we're trying to hold on to parts of our lives. It's probably because we don't want to give that bit over to Jesus. And we feel frustrated. And, we, and actually, we feel the walk in the freedom that he gives us. And, and, and what I would say is, this kind of idolatry, it usually comes about pretty un, like, unconsciously. Like we prob- most of us, usually most people don't have some grand decision to turn away from Jesus and start worshiping their kids or you know, their boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it is for you, I don't know. But most of us don't have that. It, it, just, it, 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 kind of, it kind of happens over time, doesn't it? It just creeps in in the small things. It, it, it manifests itself in the small decisions that we make. So maybe we find it easier to just stay at home and relax than to go out and serve our brother and sister that's in need or maybe needs a word of encouragement or, or a shoulder to cry on or help moving house or whatever it is. Or maybe we decide that it's more important to work late than to gather together with our missional community when they're having dinner together and praying together and studying the Bible together. In my case, I find it so much easier to put my stock and importance in being a church leader than in my relationship with Jesus. And so maybe we need to start asking ourselves, what are the idols in my life? What am I holding on to? What am I putting more trust in than Jesus? And as we realize what those are, we can just turn to Jesus and flee from that kind of idolatry. The opposite of making good things our ultimate things is not getting rid of the good things. It's just putting them in their rightful place. Making Jesus first. And all those things will be better and sweeter because of that. And so that's the first part of fleeing from idolatry. Recognizing that it's not just about Sunday. But the second, the second lesson comes from verses 11 to 13. Um, and the second lesson is that you can't stand on your own strength. Okay, you can't stand on your own strength. I'm going to read these few verses because they're important. Um, verse 11. Now these things happened as, uh, to them as an example. So all these things happened to the Israelites as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So we have a record of it, so that we can be instructed by that and learn from their mistakes. On whom the end of the ages has come. We've talked about this before. We, the church, live in the end times. 
Verse 12, Therefore, because of all of that, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. These verses are are both a warning and an encouragement for us, right? So the warning is simple. If we try to stand on our own own strength, we're going to fall. Paul says, if you think you've got what it takes on your own, you're going to fail. It's like, I find myself, uh, there's a lot of kids' movies on in the background of my house these days. I'm finding Nemo, his dad's like, you think you can do this, but you just can't. That's kind of like Paul said to us. It's like, you think you can stand? You just can't. We can't resist temptation on our own. And you know that, because you've all tried to do it. Okay, uh, I'm just going to stop looking at that dodgy stuff online. I'm going to stop. I'm really going to try and do that. Three, four, five days later, what happens? Happens again. You can't stand in your own strength. We can't resist temptation on our own strength. And if we try purely on our own efforts, we're going to fall. And Paul, he, Paul uses this word stand. He often uses that word stand. It relates to our like, perseverance to the end. So if we, we uh, and then what he's saying, he's talking about persevering in the faith. And he's saying, if, if we want to persevere in the faith, we can't do it in our own strength. And so if we can't stand in our own strength, what do we do? Well, this is where the encouragement comes. Verse 13. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is common to man, right? God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And, and the thing is, it's so easy, and you'll know this from, from your own experience, like it's so easy that in the middle of, especially when you're being tempted to despair or tempted to, uh, you know, especially tempted into idolatry and all these kinds of things, it's easy to feel completely alone, isn't it? And you think, nobody else has ever gone through this. Nobody else could possibly feel the way I do right now. But that's not true, right? That's not true. In fact, it's a lie from the enemy to make you feel isolated, to make you feel desperate. And, there, and therefore, when you feel desperate and isolated, you're less likely to turn to your brothers and sisters and, and say, hey, I'm struggling with this and I don't know what to do. Can you pray for me? And there's nothing the devil likes more than to isolate believers. Just get you in your own headspace. Fill your head full of lies. We all know what that feels like. Here's the truth. Paul says, you aren't alone. You're not alone. There's nothing you can face that other people haven't already gone through. There's no kind of temptation that other Christians haven't already faced. So don't go through it alone. Get in your core groups. Tell other people. Tell your missional community. Share what you're struggling with and let them support you and encourage you and get around you and pray together about it. Because you know why? God is faithful. God is faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability, and He always provides a way out so that we can persevere to the end. In fact, you could say we don't persevere to the end. He preserves us to the end, right? God will never let you down. He's not going to let you face something that you can't get through. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. That's what, this, that's what his words say here. And he's always going to be there to give you a way through. 
And in the context of, of dealing with temptation to make other things God in our lives, I love this because it always means there's a right choice. You always have a right choice. You can always choose to do the right thing. You're never faced with a lose-lose situation. God is faithful. He doesn't abandon his people in the middle of temptation. No matter how strong that temptation is, he will not leave you alone. No matter if it feels unbearing, you're not alone. Please hear me this morning. God is telling you that you are not alone. You're not alone. And not only that, but he gives us the power to resist temptation. As a Christian, you have the power to resist sin. You don't have to sin. You can choose not to sin. God is the one who preserves us in the faith. And he's the one who sees you to the end. And by relying on him, we will make it to the end. You don't have to give in to temptation. And so he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Why? Because you don't have to give in to temptation. God has given you the power through Jesus to resist. You will never face something that you can't resist. And he is the one who sees you through to the end. You know what that means? It means that all those times when you feel helpless. You know all those times you feel helpless to do anything except the wrong thing? You know all those times when it feels, when it feels like sinning is inevitable? You know that feeling? I know I'm going to sin here. There's nothing else I can do. You know what it means? It means that that's a lie. It means that it's not inevitable. For the children of God, sinning is not inevitable anymore. God provides a way out. That's what he says here. You're not powerless against sin because you are in Jesus and Jesus defeated sin. You're not powerless against sin. You don't have to. In your struggle with sin, you're not powerless because you're in Jesus and he has defeated the power of sin. And so we flee from idolatry and we can because he enables us to do it and we're not alone. So we recognize that it's not just something for Sunday we also recognize that we can't stand on our own strength and we rely on his strength. We recognize that Jesus is Lord of all of our lives. But thirdly and finally, we need to recognize that we share in the blessings of Christ. We share in the blessings of Christ. Let me talk about what this means. Well, Paul goes on to talk about communion again, doesn't he? And he goes into some of the specific details. So what has communion got to do with idolatry? Well, it turns out actually quite a lot. Because the Lord's Supper is really powerful. Not in the way that the Corinthians had thought. It's not like some kind of magic shield that stops us from sinning or protects us from the effects of sin. But it is really powerful. Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless, okay, so, so our cup of wine here that we're looking at, is not that cup uh, sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Okay, so, in, in the Lord's Supper, we are sharers in the blood of Christ, and we are sharers in the body of Christ. And there is something in idolatry that makes us want to flee from, from idolatry, something in communion that makes us want to flee from idolatry. But what does this mean? Does he mean that we, are actually, that we are actually drinking the physical blood of Christ or eating the physical body of Christ? Or is there some other meaning? Well, I think there's some other meaning. And I think the answer comes in this idea of sharing. In verse 18, Paul says, you know, look at, what does he say? 
he says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, this doesn't mean that they eat the altar. Clearly, they don't eat the altar. It's made out of stone. It means that they share in the benefits of what happened on the altar, right? On the altar, God, in the Old Testament, the priest would make the sacrifices. And as he did that, on that altar, God removes guilt and, and, and forgives sin. And he makes peace and establishes this fellowship of thanksgiving and love with the people. And, and so, to be a sharer in the altar in the Old Testament is to share in all those things that God is doing on the altar. And so, it's the same for us when we take the Lord's Supper together. When Christ was sacrificed on the cross, His blood, uh, when he, he shed His blood and gave His body, you know what God was doing? God was removing sin, remo uh, removing guilt and forgiving sin and making peace and establishing a fellowship with all the people who believe in Him. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper then is, is not that we eat the actual physical uh, blood and body of Christ, but the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to share in all the benefits of what happened on the cross. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to receive from Christ the nourishment and strength and hope and joy that come from spiritually feasting on all the things that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, especially that fellowship with himself. In other words, when we take communion together, we are sharing in the benefits that Christ's body broken and bloodshed bought for us, including our unity with Him and with each other. And here's how this relates to idolatry. If, if Christ, if communion is actually a, a, a fellowship with Jesus, if it's actually partaking of Him, if it's actually enjoying all the things that He bought for us by His sacrifice on the cross, then how does this relate to idolatry? Well, in verse 20 and 21, this is when he starts talking about demons. He uses this word sharers again. He says, not that I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So he's not saying that they in their head are, are, are actually offering them to demons. But, uh, sorry, he said, yes, he said, he said he implies that. Sorry, I got mixed up when I read it. He implies that what they, re, they offer to, uh, in the temples, they offer to demons and not to God. And so he said, I don't want you to be participants. I don't want you to share with demons. So what he's saying is that idols are nothing and idol food is nothing, but demons are at work where there is idols. Where there is idolatry, there, there, there's the demonic at work. Leading us astray, whispering in our ears. Nothing can fill you as much as, you know, I don't know, that new bike. I always go back to my own stuff. <laughs> that really fulfill you. No, shut up, demon. That won't fulfill me. Only Jesus can fulfill me. And that's what he's saying. And, and idols in and of themselves have no power, but the demons are not a figment of our imagination. Demonic forces are all too real. And so sacrifice is offered to idols. Anytime, and we're not offering the food to, to idols, but we are offering our lives to idols, aren't we? When we put other things in the place of God. And Paul says that when we do that, we're, offering, we're making offerings to demons. And this doesn't mean that we're eating the demons when we worship the idols of our lives. It means that, that we're getting entangled in their power. It means that we submit to them. It means that we become vulnerable to them. It means that we enter into some kind of fellowship with them. We affirm them in some way. And we give them leeway in our lives. And this may sound strange to you, but the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
We wrestle against unseen authorities and powers. And Paul says, you can't be in fellowship with Christ and be in fellowship with demons. So don't let idolatry into your life because when you do, you're getting entangled with the demonic. But on the other hand, when we come to the Lord's table, when we share in His meal, we get entangled with Christ. We submit to Christ and we become vulnerable to Him and we give Him leeway in our lives and we enter into fellowship with Him. And this is why the Lord's Supper is called communion because it's communing with Christ rather than with demons. We commune with the living Jesus. And so the true purpose of the Lord's Supper is to deepen and strengthen our sharing on all the benefits of the cross. When we take communion, we're nourishing our fellowship with Christ Himself. And this is why coming to the table week after week affects every day of our lives, not just Sunday. What happens here is about more than just a Sunday morning. Because it's more than just remembering the Lord's death. It's communion with Him who was dead, but now is alive and is alive forevermore. And so when we, when we come and commune with him who was dead and is now alive and is alive forevermore, we're fleeing from idolatry, right? You see how this starts to make sense? All those things that maybe throughout the week we've started to give power to in our lives, our kids, our identity, our sexuality, our, 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 our money, our, our job, whatever it is. And then we come to the table and we say, actually, you know what, Lord? You are the only Lord of my life. We're rejecting the demonic. Lord, you are the only one who died for me. You're the only one with the power to set me free. You're the only one who can forgive my sin and save me forever. And so the communion meal nourishes our souls. And we need that. You know, tell me you don't need your soul nourished. We need that. And Jesus, he's the one who sets the table. And and he says, come. Come and feast with me. Come and rest with me for a while. Come and, come and share in all the blessings I bought for you by my body and blood on the cross. Jesus sets the table. He serves the food. And he is the meal. And so we do feast in him when we take the communion together. John Piper says it way better than I ever could. Uh, he says, that's what it means to share in the blood and body of Christ. Listen to this. To sit with Jesus at the banquet of the benefits of his death. Taking communion is to sit with Jesus at the banquet of the benefits of his death. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to allow Jesus to remind us that he is Lord of all, that he's Lord of all of our lives, and and that it's more than just about Sunday morning. We're going to feast on the amazing truth that that God is the one who who preserves us to the end. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can resist temptation. That not by relying on our own strength, but by relying only on Him. And we're going to commune with Jesus. If you're a Christian and you come to take this meal this morning, you're communing with Jesus. You're receiving the nourishment for your soul that allows you then tomorrow when things start to get on top of you and you feel tempted to put that work deadline above Jesus, then you go, no, actually, remember what I did? Jesus is the Lord of my life. So maybe you need to, maybe you're coming to the table this morning. If you're a Christian, maybe you need to just remind yourself uh, that Jesus is the Lord of your life. 
Maybe you need to remind Jesus that you still love him. Jesus, I do still love you, regardless of all the ways I put you second or third or fourth or fifth or tenth this week. I still love you, and I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to flee from idolatry. I want to deny myself so that you can be glorified. So if you're a Christian, um, we're, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. And, and if you're a Christian, come forward and, and, and receive this meal. Break off some bread and dip it in the wine. If you're not a Christian, just stay where you are. We'd ask that you don't take this as something that Jesus gave just for his followers. It's, it's part of this as a public declaration that, that we are following Jesus. But you can receive Jesus where you are. You can just say, Look, uh, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I turn away from all the things that, that, that I put in, I make ultimate things that I put in place of you. I want you to be Lord of my life. Um, and he invites you to do that. He invites you to come. So let me pray for us. And, and the band are going to come back up and we're going to sing while we do that.